Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce-Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today, we are joined by Rosie Acosta, an international speaker, yoga and meditation teacher, holistic health coach, and host of the Radically Loved podcast. Amy and I first met Rosie when we appeared on her podcast in October to talk about living the sutras. We had a fantastic conversation, and after we were done recording, we chatted for a while, and Rosie suggested we start our own podcast. Well, here we are. We're thrilled to have Rosie here to talk to us today. In this interview, we talked to Rosie about her turbulent childhood, how yoga and meditation helped her overcome the obstacles in her life, the importance of connecting with people, and her mission to help everyone live a radically loved life. Hey, girls. Hey, Rosie. Rosie, this is all your fault. I know. I'm so excited. That makes me so happy. It was, you know, it's so funny. I was thinking about it, like, as I was interviewing you guys and when we're having that dialogue, it was, that's where it was just coming to me. I'm like, oh, this is, there's no question about it. They need to do this. It's so great. Thank you. (laughs) Are you kidding? I'm excited to talk to you guys. Let's do this. All right. Let's do it. I actually thought it was really interesting that Yoga Journal described your childhood as tumultuous, and I've heard you describe it in similar terms. So let's start with that. To me, obviously, because I lived it, it's just the normal way. I don't think I didn't think that there was anything tumultuous or chaotic per se when I was living it, which I think is what made it more impactful when I began to share my story with the world, because I just thought that everybody grew up in an environment where there was drive-by shootings and there was gang violence and people were using drugs and there was like domestic abuse and and it wasn't until I began to suffer from physical ailments that were manifesting because of the traumas that I had lived through as a child that I started to realize that perhaps there was something amiss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I I think that as I was living through seeing these these different things, you know, uh, in my environment, uh, I just learned to cope at a very young age. I learned how to survive. And I learned that I needed to be a grown up really quickly in order to uh, live in a world that was chaotic, and that was unfair, and that was unjust. And that's, that's just the way things were. And I think a lot of that for me, uh, didn't really sit well, even as a child, it just none of it felt like that was the true way of life. And I think that the more I followed that, the more that the dysfunction began to manifest itself. And ultimately, it brought me to a place as a teenager, which I I talk about quite uh, openly. I was suffering, suffering from debilitating panic attacks and anxiety. And I was on uh, medication for depression. And I was and I couldn't sleep. And it was just, um, I was self medicating with 
with marijuana and, you know, drinking, underage drinking. Like I was just trying to, you know, self-soothe myself from, from these different things that I didn't know what was, what was happening. And it wasn't until I got in trouble with the law. That's what ultimately put me on a path to, or it brought me to the fork in the road. That was the determining factor of either I was going to overcome this, these adversities and I was going to face the things that were actually creating the dysfunction in my life, or I was going to be a product of my environment. I, I don't know how you stayed out of being a product of your environment as a 10 or a 12 or a 14 year old. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't really, if you think about it, there was, you know, a lot of like sections of people in school and there was like the, the tagger kids and there was like the, the studious kids and then the, you know, gangbanger kids and, and all those types of different, you know, pockets. And I, I could get along with all of them. And part of my ability to be a little chameleon was, I think, what helped keep me out of trouble for the most part. Like, I mean, obviously I got in trouble, but it really helped keep me out of the more serious life altering decisions that I was able to like survive. And I, and I got to be honest, I was really lucky. And there was a lot of moments where I can think back now that I, I'm surprised I'm alive. Yeah. Somehow your chameleon practice helped you navigate clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was almost like my, my way of not fully uh, having to commit to any one I'm going to do air quotes, like any one way of life or tribe, you know, to me, being a chameleon helped me fly under the radar where I I didn't really get noticed and I didn't really want to make waves because that's just kind of what I saw to to be my survival mechanism. But Mm -hmm. it also meant that I didn't want to really shine my light and I didn't want to show people how smart I was or any of those things like I love to read I love to learn about things and I was constantly like asking questions and I was very curious but I couldn't let on because when you're in that type of environment when you're smart or you're you're trying to achieve it it makes the other people or the people around you really see all the ways that they're not performing and instead of me being courageous at that time and and helping empower my my peers, I was just in fear. When you get arrested and you said, you described it as a fork in the road, did you really, at that moment, did you recognize that like, this is it, like I got to get it together or not? Yeah, I was scared to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was that like? I Let's was start with that. scared. <laughs> I, I remember going to court, my poor mother, it's, and my mom and I had a really tenuous relationship we had really it was almost like non-existent um my parents had separated when I was 10 and I was actually living with my father it wasn't until I uh was about 13 14 15 when I started to get into trouble that I moved in with my mom and so my poor mother just had to deal with my shenanigans and so anyway I remember going to court and I knew that they wouldn't send me to jail right then when I had that court date, but I was in fear of what my sentence was going to be. And we had a court ordered attorney and she was like, well, they're going to give you this and this and we'll have to, you'll have to plead uh, guilty and they're going to give you six months probation. And that's ultimately what you want. And I'm like, okay, you know, so 
so I just did what what she recommended and and it was fine except that I wasn't abiding by the probation I came back after six months and the judge was like not having any of it and said I'm gonna I'm going to extend your probation for a year. <laughs> and um, yeah, which was terrible because basically most of my high school life was spent on probation, which is where, where I say like it really saved my life because I had I not had that that push. And it was just like the, the next part, the next portion after that, if I didn't abide, not even one, if I missed a curfew, if I missed a probation meeting that month, if I didn't do my anger management classes and my counseling and my therapy and my community service, if I missed one thing, if I was, if I was caught after hours with a group of friends, or if I was even with friends that got pulled over, I'd go straight to jail. Like that was sort of the, the fine line. So that put the living fear of God into me because <laughs> Because at that point I was like, okay, so now I have to, I have to get it together. I don't, I don't want to go to jail and this is scary and this is real. And I, I saw how much suffering my mom was going through because she had to pay for all this stuff. And it was, it was, I, I didn't really have a choice. It was either I straightened up or, or I would just, you know, become another statistic, you know, and I have a whole new uh, perspective, all the people, my probation officer, you know, even the officer that arrested me, like all of those people in my life that really essentially did me a favor and helped put me on the right path. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm completely grateful for. And I, I truly believe that those people in this world that we need more of them, we need more people like that, that really believe in kids and are, are willing to put their, their energy and effort into cultivating their potential. Hmm. So, okay, so you have the fear of God instilled in you. <laughs> um, how do you start to actually turn it around? What, like, specific things were you doing? I think that what was most effective for me was having having something to do. And I know that might sound basic and even perhaps a little bit mundane, but it really gave me a purpose, even if it was a daily thing that I had to do. So I got a job, I got a job at the mall, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I started to really focus on school into focusing the, into the things that I really enjoyed, like my English classes. And I was taking, I was taking a pottery class. Like <laughs> I was, I started to really focus on trying to get the most that I could out of where I was, because ultimately I'm like, well, I'm here. I might as well get into it. And I just gave myself tasks, like giving myself a purpose and having a place to go and having something to do really helped set the tone to uh, achieving more than just letting life happen to me. I was able to really understand this idea of taking agency in your own life and mm. being a self-starter. I didn't know what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be, but I know what I didn't want to be. Mm. So I think that for me really helped shape more of a routine because it's like, if I can do something every day, that's going to keep me from that future that I don't want. That's what I'm going to do. Hmm. And so that's why when I got introduced to yoga and meditation, it was, it was such a, uh, like no brainer for me because I liked the, the repetitiveness of it. I liked the consistency and I enjoyed the ritual of it. 
Yeah. So tell us how that how that happened, how you started. I I again it's something that I, I spoke about in the yoga journal article where I, I talk about my mom coming home with these yoga uh from the Paramansa Yogananda Center, the self realization center. She came home with these little pamphlets that they give out and they they're all about manifesting and finding happiness and all of these things that I'd never really I I was really curious about. I was always into really esoteric things even as a as a young teenager and, and even as a young child because my grandmother was she would host these beautiful prayer circles and she was very devout um catholic but she was also raised in a village where her and her grandmother and her great grandmother they were all healers and so I kind of grew up with having this kind of like I call it my woo-woo side you know it's just like <laughs> this really cool like ritualistic burning the sage and flower petals and shrines and all of those things, but then the other part of me that was very, um, uh, I, I was very not apprehensive, but I was a bit skeptical because I also understood the law of the land in regards to the reality of the world and our current state of suffering, right? Because I'm like, yeah, if all that was true, then people wouldn't be suffering. If all that was true, then people wouldn't um, be killing each other. If that was true, then all the people that do good in the world wouldn't get killed or yeah all of those things right and so I had a really hard time coming to that resolve but so when I I started to learn about these different modalities and I was curious and I ended up going in and there was a woman I talked about the story too it's one of my favorite uh memories this woman giving a lecture about happiness and finding her own happiness and as she's going on it's very church-like it felt very familiar And as she's speaking, I sat down and I really liked what she was saying, but I kept waiting for the quote unquote, like priest or main lecturer man to come in or like do the thing. And I'm like, oh no, it's this woman's the one. She's the one. She's the the one giving (laughs) giving the thing. And I, and I really like, I remember I was like, oh, I really like that. And I really liked her, you know? It really clicked and I definitely had an awakening in that moment because everything that she was saying, I knew and there was finally words that matched what my insides were feeling and what they'd always known was that we were responsible. I come from a victimhood mentality where my family and the people around me, it's like the world just happens to you. There's You have no control and it's just kind of the way things are and you just have to really let go of of wanting to change it. And I, I didn't really believe, believe in that. In yeah, I was like, <laughs> no, that doesn't feel that doesn't feel that doesn't resonate well with me. And and that's really where where my journey started, because after that, it, it just opened the door to different ways of living my life. Yeah, makes sense. Well, to your point about talking, I'm curious about being responsible, you know, that you said, you might you heard something to the degree of, the sermon was being about like, I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible yeah. for my happiness. And I think there can be some kind of negativity around saying like, oh, now I have to become responsible or I have to mm. take, you know, something like it's a negative thing rather than us empowering, at, empowering like, oh, yeah. I, have, I'm in, I have the ability to change my direction. Yeah. Not, oh, now I have to take responsibility for all the crap that I'm in. Yeah. But like, oh, 
I, this can actually set me free. Yeah. And if it, did you see responsibility as that? I mean, after all of the time mm. that you spent probably saying like, I don't, I'm not going to, I don't care no. if I see a, a C, a B. Yeah. No, not at all. I was excited to be responsible. I wanted to be responsible. I wanted to be in control. I know that that sounds a bit, you know, like, but I think I needed to have that, that, uh, foundation and that resolve as firm as it was in order to complete what I wanted to complete because I wasn't raised that way. I was raised with the victimhood mentality. And I think that part of what was really huge for me too, was there's a, a, also difference in culture. You know, I was born and raised in this country. Like this is, this is my, this is my country. I'm American. So for me growing up in a different culture and having, you know, my, my father being Mexican American and my mother being Spanish, like these are different cultures. These are different. They do things differently and they have a a different value system. And then you grow up in an environment where people around you don't have a value system or don't stand for anything. And again, it's this mentality of tall poppy syndrome. You know, it's like poppies all grow at the same height. The minute one grows a little bit more than the others, the others pull it down or it Mm. dies. You know, this is, this is the same type of, of mentality. And I, I just bringing it back to our society. Now I feel like, look, I have, and I have a 20 year old little sister you know, that lives with, with Tori and I. So we're essentially raising this, this child that it's such a different world. And I try to do, see the comparisons. And obviously she didn't have the childhood that we had that my older sister and I had, but it's just different now. And I pertain it back to standing for something and really um, finding that desire within yourself or your Dharma, right? So finding that purpose. And I feel like a lot of what is is happening now that I find um, scary is that this belief system that if you don't stand for if you stand for nothing, then you'll fall for everything. Hmm. Right. And so I think that's a very slippery slope when we're in an environment where we we can't uh, commit to things or we don't have discipline to do something or we don't have an inset value system that we can really revere then then nothing is sacred, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to rise above something that's been suppressed, you have to know it's been suppressed, right? right? If, that, if there's a culture right. that you're in where there's all this suppression, even if some values are there, if you, if you see yourself as already in a place where you, you can't do anything or repression, either, either yeah. of those, you've got to figure out how to <laughs> get inspired, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I remember going to one of my first uh, therapists. Uh, I was, I think it was like 13 or 14. And I remember, you know, she was asking me about my childhood. And I was always really sort of like guarded from anybody in power, because that's just how it was raised. You know, anybody that had authority, I was always kind of like, Oh, don't make waves. Don't say anything that's going to raise any red flags, like, say nothing. But I just remember feeling so comfortable with her and her saying, Oh, you were raised by wolves. Mm. And I was like, what, what does that mean? You know, like what I started to think about it. And I'm like, Oh, this was just a metaphor of essentially raising myself in, in a way to really just stay in my bubble and go through the motions and, and know that there were certain things that didn't resonate with me that I wasn't going to go along with. Like I wasn't going to go along with the fact that, 
people in my lives were in abusive relationships or that people were abusing drugs or, or alcoholics. Like those things didn't resonate with me. And I knew that they were things that I was not going to do when I got to be of a certain age, you know? Now we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Rosie to tell you about this week's giveaway, which comes from Alchemy Forever. I've been using this skincare line for a few months now and love it. One of my favorite things is that all of the products are vegan as well as cruelty, paraben, and phthalate free. This week, one listener will get a gift pack of products from Alchemy Forever. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot, and share it on your Instagram stories. Tag us at Kelly Donardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Alchemy Forever. That's A-L-C-H-I-M-I-E forever. And all listeners get 20% off with the promo code SUTRA20, all caps on SUTRA, with any purchase from their website, which is alchemy-forever.com. And now back to our chat with Rosie. So you said that you had to figure out or that one has to figure out what you stand for Mm -hmm. and kind of what your dharma is. So how did you figure that out? I mean, that feels like a really big question. Oh, goodness. (laughs) I'm still figuring it out. Is that that still – I feel like I will forever be a student, and I really hope that I never lose that. I I think that part of what I've found to be the most inspiring is to lift – other people up like I think that that really lights me up that makes me so happy you know when when my friends get good news or people close to me get good news or you know people that I know start a podcast like (laughs) those, those, those things really I mean they really create so much joy in my physical body that it's almost like if it's happening to me you know and and I really feel that Taking that level of love and dedication and hope and wander and just overall inspiration, taking it into anything I do, I know that I will be successful because mm-hmm. ultimately for me, it's it's being able to cultivate a life and, and depending on whether I continue to teach yoga for the rest of my life or not, or I decide to, you know, focus on my podcast or I decide to write books or whatever it is that I do. I, I really hope that I never lose that because I love people. I really do love people. And I, I come from a belief system now that the world is not a terrible place. And there is so many people doing good in this world. And I feel that we just we need to continue to lead with love and lead from our hearts in order to create that ripple effect, if I sat and thought about all the fucked up shit that's happened and all the ways that our society's fucked up and all the ways that there's mental health issues and all the ways that our, our teenagers are growing up in this, this world of technology and distraction and disconnection, you know, all of that stuff. If I let that shit sink in, I'm like, wow, this is a fucked up place. So, and I, and I, and I honestly, it's just like when I was a kid, like, I don't really believe that. Like, that's not part of my genetic makeup. I don't believe in it. I I believe that, that humans at their heart are good. And I believe that we can always make change. And I, I believe in the greater good. And I, and if anything, that's just the way that I want to live my life. I always want to be able to look in the fullness of life, not the emptiness. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, my favorite sutra probably, Kelly might agree with it too. I think it's one of our tops is Sutra 33 in book two, which is um, Patanjali's instruction on cultivating the opposite, you know, like yes. the mind is going mm -hmm. and focusing on the positive. Yep. And it's like, it's my golden gem, I think, in the second book, because at any moment we can get pulled by, I mean, already today I could name 10 things that have brought me and could have taken me into a really negative spin. You know, where it, I can start to feel it and I think, what's right now? What's the opposite? I have this tool. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on something that is complete, completely outside of this. Because if we can't find this way to uplift ourselves, you know, I don't know how we, I don't know how to, else to do it. Like you're exactly like you're saying. Do you have a favorite sutra? Is there one that you think of? I know you have a pretty close relationship with the sutras yeah. or an idea concept in the, in the uh, yoga sutra that you think, this is the one that keeps pulling, pulling me back and lifting me up. Yeah. Tapas Ishvara Pranidhana mm -hmm. for sure. It's, it's about cultivating that fire of transformation and believing in your higher purpose and in the divine, you know, Ishvara, Ishvara, to my, to my understanding, the way I've learned it is it's the ruler of waves, right? So mm -hmm. I love that so much and uh one of my dear friends who uh recently has passed and i don't know if you guys know um him michael stone we hosted him a couple of times in portland at the studio i was teaching at and um you know we became we became friends and i i loved having this conversation because he's a buddhist and i was i study with yoga rupa rod striker which is tantra and mm -hmm. obviously it's all related but it's just it's a different style right and it, it is essentially different different styles of practice but I really love his description of Ishvara and it's the ruler of the waves right and it's either however you want to visualize or picture it it's the waves of thought or the waves of emotion or or the large body of water that is your your physicality you know what whatever it is that you want to believe is that there is this grander, higher purpose that we we can surrender to. We can surrender from attachment. We can surrender what our highest vision is and just allow ourselves to be in the frequency of, of the divine, of, of everything. And choosing to let go into that. Yes, absolutely. And that it, it and that it exists to be yeah. let go into. Yeah. And I think that for me because this is the 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 bit that I that resonates with me the most is the tapas part because to me it's like oh this means you have to do something not just like you know I was, again I was raised I'm a recovering catholic like that's <laughs> that's the thing where you know in catholicism it's like oh you fuck up just pray and you're good good to go you know like just let it go or like just ask for forgiveness and it's all good you know um but to me I'm like that I don't I don't know that it's that for me, it's not that simple for me. I need to be able to cultivate a fire and a resolve and, and a purpose and a drive and a commitment and a discipline for me, that's how it works. And then I can, and, and something it, more tangible. Yeah. Something more tangible. Like that's what yeah. I was saying in the beginning. Uh, Kelly, I think when you were asking me about what kept me on the path or sort of what kept me out of trouble once I made that resolve. And, and what I was saying, it's like having somewhere to go, having something to do to me, that was the tapas. That was the fire. That's what kept me accountable to myself to continue to see the bigger vision, even though I didn't have a vision of my life. Mm -hmm. 
you know? You had the faith to had have the faith. The, right. I had the faith and faith. Mm-hmm. The faith and faith. Yeah. Okay, while we're super yoga dorking out, <laughs> <laughs> um, when you, you know, one of the, we wanted to have you on to talk about obstacles because yes. you've overcome so many. So when you look back on your childhood, do you recognize the clashes? Do you recognize, you know, the obstacles that we talk about in the sutras? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Yes, there was uh, there was a lot of that. There was uh, ignorance, obviously ignorant to my own power. Mm-hmm. I was ignorant to the the way that the world really worked. You know, I had an aversion to following the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I as a teenager, obviously, like as I was in my suffering state, I was a com- compulsive overeater and so I was almost 200 pounds I was really overweight and I was on the McDonald's diet it was like my way of eating my feelings and coping because eating a lot would make me fall asleep and so I would just kind of that was my way of disconnecting with what I was feeling because it just soothed me and I I don't know that I I ever had like a a fear of death or an aversion to dying. I think I never feared death only because I, I, I didn't believe that like, once you're dead, you're dead. And that's it. Like there was always a, there was something else. I'll leave it at that. Like we came from somewhere. We just go back to that somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think it was mostly a fear of not mattering. When you were talking about just the culture of victimhood, right. That that's where you are. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking that that, sounds like misperception of identity. I was yeah. almost going to say the same thing because the one you didn't say much we about share a was brain. That, yeah, we totally do. The one, <laughs> I don't think it's fear of death either, but I think the ego has this fear. And so this idea that you named earlier, this chameleon ability, well, when you don't, like you said, if you don't really make a decision on what your identity is, and I don't mean from an external standpoint, but, but what you stand for and what is your path, yeah. Then, then you, how can you rise? You know, then there's, yeah. if you can't, that fear of choosing the wrong thing. Yeah. Was, then you, then you stand for then nothing. You stand for nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think has the, the, the biggest loss that you can suffer in this lifetime is that not, mm-hmm. not, not standing for something, not utilizing your power, your, your God given right. <laughs> You know, your your sort of your divinity, your light, your essence to live to your highest. I always think about this and I, I remember I, I heard and I can't remember who gave this talk, but it, it was something like, you know, the Dalai Lama, uh, President Barack Obama, Einstein, everybody had the same amount of hours in the day. We're all made of the same stuff. Why is it that we get into this place where we become victims of our mental constructs that keep us from achieving what we want in in this life. Mm-hmm. We don't commit to the doing or the taking action or the standing for something and taking risk and 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 being okay with not being liked and saying things that people might not agree with and. I always want to live my, because I didn't live like that, you know, as, as a child, not that as a child, you have to take agency in your life and all that stuff. But for me, like, 
I had to grow up quickly. I saw things as a young child that I don't think any child should ever have to go through. And I feel like for me, that really helped serve my intention to living a life fully and to really committing to every day, even though there's days that, yeah, I wake up, I don't want to do anything or I want to hit the delete button on my life in, in terms of like work, (laughs) you know, like those types of things, of course, like I get into a moment, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Is this good enough? Am I good enough? You know, all of those things. But again, the undercurrent is if it all goes away, what do I stand for? And if I can still feel empowered in that, then I know that I'm living my dharma. My, can I share my favorite quote from last month? Yes. I, it's like a summary of, I think, what you've just said. So my yoga teacher, Gabriel Helfer, said, if you don't do all you can do, you're doing violence to your potential. And I was like, yeah, oh. that's it. And I think, I think people don't know that they have within them this incredible potential. So they're always feeling in a place that's sort of down and suppressed and stuck and you know, I think the yoga practices are here to kind of uncover the, that stickiness. And and I think that's what you're saying. And yeah. that, you, that you uncovered that. You figured out, wait a minute. I, I actually have to take action in order to uncover this potential with, within me. And if I don't, it's actually harming me. Yeah. Mm. I love that. Wow. That Isn't is, that good? That is deep and intense it's, and real. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> Which of the obstacles or which of those hurdles in your life do you think was the hardest to overcome mm. to, to get to that point? Oh, uh, I think that my, uh, the belief that I could actually be somebody hmm. because I, I didn't, I didn't actually think that I could ever be somebody. I, I always thought that I would, I think my, my biggest fear, even as a child has always been, well, this is kind of twofold. My my biggest fear was always that I would just be a spoke on a wheel, that that was just kind of my my dharma and my purpose, um, that I I just would be you know part of this this machine and and I wouldn't ever have an impact and and that I wouldn't really matter you know and I say it's twofold because as I've as I've grown as I've learned and as I've I've studied I I realize that. Being a spoke on a wheel is actually vital to life, and it's important to that wheel to have that spoke on there because if it didn't, it wouldn't be able to function at its full circum uh, circumferential capacity. And I, I have a different appreciation of that. And and in fact, I'm not a spoke on the wheel. I I'm part of the wheel, and though and so I I am the wheel, right? So. I think that just having that belief system has really been a lot of work and that it's taken this long to infiltrate into my thinking because I, I didn't believe that. I, and, and I think that that still has been one of the, one of the biggest hurdles uh, hmm. be, because I, I still see myself as that, um, that kid, that, that little chameleon kid that just doesn't want to doesn't want to shine, doesn't want to bring attention to me, doesn't want to, uh, doesn't want people to see me. In that seeing, you'd be, because if you got seen, you'd cause a wave that would be negative. I mean, that's really the essence of the, yeah. old, of the old belief, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, it would be negative. It would be uh, unfavorable. Mm-hmm. You know, it would not be, a, an, a, a, and in different ways, you know, I didn't want to be seen by 
my peers because I didn't want to get picked on or I didn't want to get into trouble with my teachers or I didn't want to get in trouble at home or I didn't want people to notice me because I didn't want something bad to happen to me, you know? Do you Mm. attract a certain student um, culture in your yoga classes because of what you've gone through? Do Do you see that happening? My students are so, they range from ages like 18 to 68. I can't say that I have a large variety of inner city youth that I work with. I I think my life challenges are the challenges of everyone. And I really feel like I think that a lot of people could just really relate to the the core beliefs that I needed to break out of that, that people have their own versions of it. I mean, it's not, as far as attracting people that have suffered a great deal or overcome adversity. I feel like for me, like pain is pain. Adversity is adversity. It it doesn't matter whether you grew up in a, in a, you know, white picket fence home with two loving parents and you had everything you needed. And that doesn't mean that that person hasn't suffered and hasn't overcome their own bits of adversity and, and, questioning their own relevance to this planet you know well said because pain and then I think to some of us too because we've maybe had more privilege we yeah. we diminish our our pain we say there yeah isn't, there isn't any pain there because what why should I have any pain yeah no and I I do have like a large diverse group of people that I work with but I feel like when we start to decompartmentalize these things and yeah there should be more inclusivity and yeah we need to make things more accessible but but still that what does that mean does that mean that the people that are already in the position that that have these practices in place like that they don't suffer that that it's different somehow I just I can't I don't believe that that's Mm -hmm. that's again not part of my I think that we're all part of the human race and we're all going through the same things and I feel that again suffering is suffering and the more that we get into the the groove of looking at each other as loving and, and kind humans, the more that we can begin to blur those lines and and become more of an inclusive family. You mm-hmm. know, I think that sometimes we we do this in the wrong way, you know, that's my opinion. So Well and if we believe what yoga teaches us that the divine runs through each and every one of us and all things then how can you be anything but that connected family? Yeah, yeah. agreed. Mm-hmm. I'm always conscious of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, see, this would be cultivating the opposite in our relationship. Oh my goodness, <laughs> we balance each other out. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so last question for you. Okay. The one that we're asking of everyone in a slightly different way. You know, we had to do that because you had one. Yeah, no, I yes, love it. Exactly. I'm so excited. I yes. want to let you know we learned from the best. Oh, we goodness. did learn guys, from the best. I am so happy you guys are doing this. You have no idea. <laughs> okay. So the subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. And what we always wanted to do, both with the book, with the podcast, is to make that wisdom accessible and personal and really relevant and tangible. So what off-the-mat practice really helps you overcome the hurdles in life, big or small? So 
really great. You guys chose a good one. That's good. <laughs> or you can ask the other one. The other one is, where's the best place to make love? No. Oh. <laughs> Wow. That is not on the list. Oh, that's a good one, too. I'll answer both. Um, okay. I think, I think the biggest way that I am able to take my practice off the mat and into the world is by just connecting with, with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really believe that that's where the, the magic of the practice happens anyway. I don't necessarily believe that it happens on my rectangular piece of plastic mm-hmm. or what is it i don't even know what it's made no, out of it's, probably rubber. it's, it's rubber. rubber yeah <laughs> yeah rubber um i really do feel that connecting with humans with other people being kind and empathetic is is huge you know anytime i feel myself butting up against a wall and it's easy to do in the state of the world currently especially in politics where i feel myself uh butting up against a brick wall of emotions or disdain I have to really cultivate that part of myself that acknowledges that everyone's in a state of suffering and and it's almost like this thing that happens where I want to ask everyone if they're okay (laughs) you know I'm just like I see people sometimes I could be walking or I can be I travel a lot you know so if I'm sitting next to somebody on the airplane or if I'm getting picked up by a a Lyft or an Uber, like, I I always try as much as I can to to just connect and just ask people how they are. Like, just ask, ask how they're doing or or what they're doing or what what they're excited about. Earlier this year, I was with I got picked up. uh, I was in Idaho. And my Uber driver, I, I asked him what he was most excited about. And he started crying. Like, he started crying because he he, he may have been having a bad day, but he was like, well, I haven't been asked that in probably 10 years. And I was like, oh my goodness, like that made me sad. But, but I was able to connect with him and talk to him. And obviously I had to tell him what I did. And, you know, cause that, cause it, so it maybe it, it, it would make him feel better that he wasn't talking to somebody that just some random lady in his car. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, this lady knows things about yoga and making your life better. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess I think that that's that's my way of bringing the practice off the mat into the world is just by connecting with people. And uh, the best place to make love is anywhere you can find it. (laughs) Find it anywhere. Wherever you could get it, go get it. Go get it. (laughs) A new definition of radically love. Right. (laughs) On the next episode. So on that note, tell our listeners where they can find you. Oh, yes. Well, you can go to radicallylove.com. It's my website. You can learn more about me and the stuff I've got going on, workshops, retreats, etc. And on social media, it's just at Rosie, R-O-S-I-E, Acosta, A-C-O-S-T-A, Twitter and Instagram. Mostly I hang out on Instagram. Uh, Facebook, it's uh, Facebook pages, Radically Loved Rosie and uh, you can listen to my podcast and listen to the epic interview I did with both Kelly and Amy, which was awesome, <laughs> and read their book. It's amazing, and the podcast is called Radically Loved Radio, and uh, it's available everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, everywhere. All the places. All the places, All the places. yeah. 
Thanks so much, Rosie. Thank you, Rosie. Thank this you was guys. so great. Oh my goodness. You guys are amazing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to share it with everyone and to listen to all the other stuff that you guys are doing with other people. I'm like, I'm already a fan. I'm like, when can I download it? Thank you for listening to Living It Radio. You can find links to all of the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. And remember, Alchemy Forever is giving away a gift pack of skincare products to one lucky listener. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories. Tag us at Kelly DiNardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Alchemy Forever. Thanks for listening.